This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. This is Bookmark. I'm Uma Pagan, I'm Piquet Pagan, and joining me today is this guy. Yeah, look, I'm always pleased and excited to be talking about uh, history in general, but yes, it's certainly obviously my book, but yes, definitely history in general. It's a very fascinating aspect of the human experience and just the way we know so little about it. We think we do. We think we are exposed to all this information that enables us to form judgments about what has happened in the past. But inevitably, it's the picture's either incomplete or it's been distorted in some way for, some, for various reasons. And obviously, the book talks about the various reasons why historical events may be misinterpreted or deliberately so, deliberately distorted to suit particular agendas. That was Alexander Canducci. His book, History's Greatest Lies, is a fun look at all of those things we think we knew about our past. Um, hello, my name is Alexander Canducci. I'm an author from uh, Sydney, Australia, and I've been interested in history uh, for the last 20 years, and I've written a number of books on history, both general and specialised. So, Alex, the book, the book of yours that I did read was the one called The Greatest Lies in History, Spin, Double Speak, Buck Passing, and Official Cover-Ups That Shaped the World. I like that idea that lies somehow shaped our world. Was that what inspired you to write this? Yes, it was. It was this notion that um, as you go, as one goes reading through history books and understanding, trying to understand why events occurred, it became very clear very quickly that most, uh, a great deal of history that's been written over time has been used to serve various agendas. But even beyond that, any time a historian writes a book about a particular event, there is always an interpretation placed upon the events recounted in there. So the historian may be very selective in the sort of particular events that they're using to illustrate the story. And usually at the events that are chosen uh, generally tend to serve the purpose of what the book is about. So, and unfortunately, it's very rare that you'll come across uh, any book that covers in great detail all of the events. So the historian has to be selective about what they choose. And so there's built-in bias by of any course. historian about what they select in writing it. Beyond that, there are always larger cultural paradigms that exist and or governments that wish to promote particular ideas, particular values, particular interpretations of history. And so in many instances, they're not these are not lies designed to necessarily inflame or to you know, make, you know, keep a particular group in power. But inevitably, those sort of examples do crop up. Largely, it's around trying to, you know, for someone who's writing a book to say, okay, well, I think this is the reason why Caesar crossed the Rubicon. I think it's because of this, and this is the reason why I think because of these events. And there may be other events in the history that the historian has ignored because it doesn't suit their narrative. So it's that sort of idea that got me excited about writing that book, about understanding why and where such distortions occur. Such distortions do occur even in the official narrative. So the idea that somehow documentation can prove 
truth is also, well, a stretch. So yes, in- indeed. So therefore, what you're getting is from various accounts from the archives. You will see that you know, in certain circumstances, from the bureaucrats that may exist for a particular organization or for a particular country, they may, again, selectively take. So, you know, if you've got a particular group that you're wishing to outlaw for whatever particular reason, you, in any interviews that you may have, you may selectively take from what they're recounting things that support that narrative. So in the book, I talk about uh, in the Middle Ages, when the king of, kings of France were seeking to disestablish the Knights Templar, what they did was as part of their attempts to make this happen, they would take the knights into custody, torture them, do whatever, and try and get them to elicit a narrative that suited their agenda. And so therefore, they would write down all, you know, so-and-so said X, Y, and Z to conform to what the general opinion was. And that would become the official narrative from which a desired outcome could be pursued. There was one thing that always perplexed me about official documentation. And I found that the Brits, especially in their conquering of the world, they seem to somehow have kept all of the documentation, even the bad stuff. Because when this stuff gets declassified and I look at it and I'm like, why didn't you destroy that? Because that paints you to be crazy and barbaric at the best of times in Africa and India. And I could never understand why they would keep those archives. And I, and I can't think of any other colonial power that kept it. Yes, yeah. Look, it, it's, I think it's an inbuilt arrogance in the imperial, in the imperial thought processes that go along upon, upon any imperial power. There's this notion that uh, due to our position in, in, the, in the world or whatever, we, we're innately superior, I suppose is the best way to describe it. And therefore, we can afford to keep this information and it won't make any difference because the people who read it, the people <laughs> like us who share our beliefs, I suspect that's the main reason why. It's that that very arrogant approach to imperialism, which uh, you know permeates it. But by and large, if we're talking about a regime that is designed around conquest and around you know um, promoting a, a particular ideal, they may be a bit more circumspect about the documents they keep. But the, the larger imperial powers through history, the, the British, um, the Romans, the Ottomans, they kept that documentation because there was an arrogance behind them that they would always, that their empire would exist throughout the whole of time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious, Alex. Are you given 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 the subject of your book? Are you the are you the kind of historian that is that is open to the weird new interpretations? And I, and, and I'll give you an example. Recently, I was watching this program, and I know it sounds ridiculous when I tell you what it is, but it was called Hunting Hitler, and right. it was this multi part series that somehow presumed that Hitler did not die in that bunker. And it's great, compelling television. And of course, it makes the case that it makes the case that he escaped. And, you know, he died many, many years later, possibly in South or Latin America. But it makes the case that it was a lie that needed to be agreed upon at the end of World War Two, because that was the only way we could ever have peace. Yeah, I, I, I do find those things fascinating, irritating and fascinating. Are probably the <laughs> Likewise. Two words I would describe it. Yeah, it's look, it, it's always exciting when people are seeking to understand historical events in a new way, and certainly our understanding of history does move and shape as a result of that. So things that were accepted back in the 19th century 
we would dismiss now because some of the basic assumptions around then were built around various ideological perspectives at the time. So always seeking new interpretations is exciting, but I think there is a tendency, particularly in the modern age, around broadly what I term the conspiracy theory approach to history, where not only are there lies, but there's almost systemic international lies almost that do stretch credulity, I would suggest, <laughs> by and large. So, yeah, I think, but I think it's, it's this notion that, again, underpins why potentially people believe in them and why they're hesitant to look at facts dispassionately, is that I think many people, they can't handle the world as a chaotic place where things just happen as a result of random interactions or you know someone's made a decision and as a result of that someone else has done something else and it's taken the world in a very different direction. People don't like that view of the world. What they want is an ability to, to look at things and say, oh, there must be an overarching explanation for why it's happened like that. And so therefore they look for things like conspiracy theories to reinforce that view that, that there's a group or there's someone who can control these events to, to a certain direction. So Usually the CIA. Book, well, yes, usually the CIA. <laughs> but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a chapter, there's a chapter in the book that, that talks about the protocols of Zion, of the elders of Zion. That's right. a classic example where uh, for years, for centuries now, there's been this, con this conception that a shadowy group, uh, and in this case, in the Elders of Zion, it's, it's a group of, of, uh, of, of Thai place Jews, but you can translate that to Freemasons or to the Illuminati or whatever you want, but this group that somehow has tentacles across the whole world and who are responsible for all sorts of interesting calamities, you know, and I think. There's, I think there's a deep-seated need, any, any explanation I can provide for it, that people like to or want to believe that there is this overarching explanation for random events. And of course, the world as it is doesn't help because there are real, true examples of the CIA, of governments, of authorities engaging in those sorts of deceptions and cover-ups and and official misdeeds. In, indeed. Like the, the biggest example, which was uh, originally my book was going to end with that, there was going to be a postscript about weapons of mass destruction. Again, that is a classic example. So, you know, yes, you're, you're going in and you're interfering in the government. You're manufacturing all of, these, all of these reasons, again, selectively taking evidence from where you want to achieve a particular outcome. And that outcome was disastrous for not only for the people of Iraq, but broadly across the world. It's destabilized so many people, Im immigrants flooding out of the Middle East, you know, leaving their homes, which none of them really want to do. If you, everybody kept to their own devices, would like to stay where they were born, where their family is. So they're, they're being dislocated, causing chaos across the world. And all because of one particular government's ideological agenda to drive change in the Middle East. I understand why people are suspect when organizations like the CIA are, are nominated because it, you know people think well they've done these things in various countries in South America surely you know there's no there's no boundaries of the sort of things that they would do so you split your book up into four parts and I, and, I, and I love the four parts I love the fact that it's spin and double speak it's passing the buck official deceptions and cover-ups and then acting under false pretenses so let's start with spin and double speak and essentially it's where a ruler or a government has manipulated information to cover up or justify a course of action. For spin and double speak, a classic example would be 
in the French Revolution. So one of the key defining uh, moments of the French Revolution was the point where the Bastille was stormed on July 14. And that is, you know, that's a, a national holiday in France, still celebrated, you know, 200 plus years later as, a, as the moment where the lower classes rose up to overthrow a despotic government and institute democracy largely. That event, the way it was, uh, it was cast at the time was that once they opened the Bastille, they went in there and they brought forth dozens of prisoners who were malnourished, had been in there for decades. There were descriptions in the papers of these scrawny old men with beards down to their knees. They would bring out all of these devices, which they claimed were torture devices. And so built this narrative about the fact that, you know, that, you know, that, that this, is the, that this was symbolic of the government they were seeking to, to bring to account. But the problem was that what had happened was when those events took place, so what ended up happening is that there was only about seven people who were uncovered as part of that thing. Four of them were there because they were forgers. Two were lunatics, one of whom believed he was Julius Caesar. And there was a <laughs> count in there who was, uh, who, uh, was imprisoned because uh, of his sexual proclivities. So... There were only these seven men. None of them were mistreated. And so the revolutionaries felt that this was not the image they wished to portray. So what did they do? They, as I said, manufactured all of these accounts about what they found, what was there to, in, in, to bring about, to, to basically spin the events of Bastille Day into a narrative that fitted what they wished to see. And it worked brilliantly because, you know, obviously they had control of the presses. They were pumping out all of this propaganda. It worked beautifully. The, the common people were just reinforced what, what they believed was happening there. And it certainly took France down a particular path. It robbed the French government of any legitimacy. Not only that, the other one about Marie Antoinette's famous quote about, you know, you know when there, it was reported there was no bread, let them meet cake. That was never said. That was, again, made up by the revolutionaries to bring about the desired change, to radicalize the people and to overthrow the government or to at least bring about changes whereby the middle classes could participate more openly in the government of the country. So there's an example of certainly of, of spin in terms of changing the, the narrative of a particular event and twisting it to a point where it suits the broader objectives of a group. Passing the buck. Passing the buck is something we see on a daily basis. It's where power decides to blame a person or a group of individuals to cover up something that really should be attributed to power. And we're seeing that in in and across Europe now. Oh, you know, those damn immigrants, they're stealing our jobs and our women. And of course, we're seeing that kind of rhetoric on a daily basis from a prospective future president of the United States, which is frightening. Yes. Give me some historical examples of of passing the buck. Nero, the Emperor Nero. So Nero, one of the major images that is conjured up by Nero is the burning of Rome. And the playing of the fiddle. And, yeah, and the playing of the fiddle, indeed. That's just one of the major images you have in it. And, and it's interesting that that still has taken hold because ultimately the most accurate account of the historical, the historical accounts that we have makes it very clear that Nero was nowhere near Rome. He was enjoying himself at a, at a, at a leisure resort a couple of hundred miles down the coast. The fire eventuated and he came to Rome when he heard. He opened up the imperial palaces to allow the common people somewhere to take refuge while the fire was burning. 
So, you know, he did what was expected of a chief magistrate in Rome, which the emperor was, was looking after his people. But what ended up happening is, of course, he had enemies, like many important people in the ancient world, who, after the fire was over, basically started spreading rumors that he deliberately engineered the fire because he had these grandiose plans to remake Rome in his own image. And obviously the fire actually did allow him to do that. So the word started to spread that he deliberately engineered this. So this is the interesting thing. So someone passed the buck of the fire to, to, onto Nero, and then Nero decided, no, I don't want to, I'm not going to wear this. So he decided to pass the buck onto a group of citizens and non-citizens who were felt to be disruptive elements in the state. And that, in this case, was the Christians. So, so he basically said, no, these are the ones who were actually responsible for the fire. They gather in secret clandestine meetings. They speak about the world ending in fire. And they were the ones who did it. And so... Oh, so that's fantastic. So you had a compound lie. Yes, indeed. So, you know, it's, and, and of course, you know, obviously it's, it's hard to tell at this time where the fire came from. Rome at that time was not the Rome of the movies, you know, full of marble and stone. Rome largely in the time of Nero, I mean, Augustus had made some effort to revitalize a city and build large monumental temples, but the vast majority of Rome was made out of wood and fires were a regular occurrence. What it was, was this particular fire was, was venomous because of the way the wind was coming at that particular time. It was just random, but it just such a big fire that people should have been expecting it. It was fairly common, but obviously Nero was unpopular. His senatorial enemies thought this was an opportunity potentially to cause trouble for him, blamed him, and he decided, well, no, I'll blame someone else instead. <laughs> Part three of your book is official deceptions and cover-ups. These are a dime a dozen every every few years. Papers get declassified. Was there anything in particular that really surprised you in your research? Was there something that took you aback and, and had you go, okay, I did not see that coming? The one that sort of got me was, uh, I suppose, the chapter on, on Vietnam and the Vietnam War, the origins of the Vietnam War, and that we all take for granted that, you know, American policy in the world has never been not necessarily been benign in most instances. You know, it hasn't led to good outcomes. In this case, you would, given the, the information that's around about the Vietnam War, it's fairly recent, you would imagine that there would be a, some degree of, of acknowledgement of, of the events. But the one thing that interested me there was the fact that it seemed like the spark of it was just a mistake. It was a radar reading made by a, a American warship that may or may not have been a North Vietnamese vessel, and that because there'd been an event three days before where you know something had occurred with a North Vietnamese vessel, and it seemed like that they'd taken pot shots, but the radar information wasn't clear. It just seemed like it was, like this, it was just a series of bungles and mistakes that at Washington, when they were getting this this information through without clarity, obviously they were seeking clarity and, and therefore because they were anticipating the worst and possibly because they were hoping to engineer something, they thought, no, it must be this, we'll act upon it. And even afterwards, when it was clear that it was it was an error within, it wasn't, wasn't very long, but within a day or two, it was clear that, it, that, it, that nothing had happened. The the snowball of events had taken place. You know, obviously orders had been given that, you know, we will now start to escalate this. And therefore it was too late to pull back. And too embarrassing 
potentially to pull back and to admit, oh, sorry, guys, um, what we thought was an attack wasn't an attack at all. So they had to go with that deception and basically attempt to cover it up by saying, oh, no, 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 they were attacked and that's the way it is and we were there due to the fact that we were attacked. So acting under false pretenses, I guess the most common example we can think of is what you mentioned earlier about the Iraq war. But this this would be something that would... It, I'm thinking this is something made all the more easier in this current age we're living in. Because the spread of misinformation, uh, whether it by the media or by individuals, even ones with no vested interest, but just conspiratorial in nature could lead to incredibly dire outcomes. It's interesting you mentioned that. It, it's, it's, it's remarkable in, in one respect about the understanding of history that in the past, so many centuries, understanding of, of trying to get to a, a, a realistic understanding of events that occurred in the past was always limited primarily through a lack of information. Up until last century, you know, up until the 1850s, literacy was limited. So people just didn't know, they couldn't read. What was available, the amount of information that was available was limited. And and again, through official readings of things, it was may have been distorted in certain ways. So there's very limited information for people to make judgments on, which meant the interpretation of history was quite difficult. Fast forward 150 years later with the arrival of the internet, and you've got the exact same issue occurring, but not through a lack of information, but just through an enormous surplus of information. There is so much of it out there that you, you, it is very hard for the ordinary person to, to work their way through it, to come to an understanding of what's reasonable in terms of interpreting events. It's, it's, it's remarkable that you've, we've gone, you know, we're basically at this, almost the, large at the same point where we were over 150 years ago, but for very, very different reasons. And, 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 and the fracturing of the media, the ability for people to pick and choose what they want to suit a particular agenda is remarkable. And, and it's happening across the world. It's happening you know, in terms of elections. It's happening wherever you look. It's a remarkable transformation. And yeah, as I said, I find that paradigm shift and, and we're still you know, unable to find easily what the truth is. And in fact, probably that period from about 1900 through to 2000, that one that that century, where you had you know you had mass printing, you had a lot of printing, you had a lot of books, a lot of literacy, and you had people who were professional historians who could sift through all of the information and provide stuff, and less less overt manipulation, I suppose, certainly from the media during that period. It meant that you could actually find more accurate information and more accurate interpretation of the past. That's disappearing as we speak. It's, it's interesting, Alex. I'm, I'm reading your book, and my big takeaway is that I can't say that honesty is always the best policy. <laughs> and I say that because there are times when lies and half-truths have been used to serve the greater good, and, and there are times when it's led to absolute disaster. And I don't know, and which is why I wanted to ask you, when you were done writing the book, did you come to some kind of conclusion? Could you boldly say, actually, you know what, on the whole, all things considered, the truth is always best? Look, um, I always think the truth is always best. I think nothing is served by 
deception or by manipulation. Even even if you've got the best intentions, that what the old saying I think holds true. You know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. All these people in the past who did these things, with with, with small exceptions, all thought they were doing they were doing they were doing something good. So the revolutionaries, the French Revolution, the Russian Revolution, all of these ideologues were convinced that they were doing the right thing and that, you know, either having too much information or the wrong sort of information would lead to a very poor outcome. And therefore, they were convinced that they were doing the right thing. And that's, that's the, the danger is about those sort of understandings that people, people in power think, I know what's best for you. And therefore, I will tell you what you need to know. So I'll give you an example from the 19th century. So after the fall of Napoleon and the reorganization of Europe, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which had taken over various parcels of, of Italy and other bits of land, had a very, very strict censorship regime where they didn't want people reading the wrong sorts of books because, because they felt that reading such books that were talking about democracy or talking about uh, the, the ability of the ordinary person to have some influence on the broader world would lead to chaos and would destroy what they felt was the best mechanisms for government. And so I always think in all circumstances, the truth should win out and we should make every effort to uncover what that truth is, if for nothing else, to at least hopefully tell future generations, look, this is how you got here. This is the truth of how you got here. Don't make the same mistakes. Don't assume in, 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 your, in your future arrogance that you know better than the people who came before you who had very, very similar motives. Look at what they did, learn from it, and perhaps understand that you know if, if, if you do allow the truth to be set free, at least you're able to make rational decisions based upon that rather than distorted decisions based upon nationalism or ideology or racism or whatever it is that gets you obsessed at that particular time. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful, <laughs> though the, the study of history has shown me that's probably a forlorn hope, but I'm always hopeful that at some point we as a species will understand that it's in our interest to try and expose the truth for what it is and rational truth, not hysterical, conspiratorial truth. And you filled me with just a little bit more hope for that. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for your time. It, was, it has been lovely chatting with you. I always, Likewise. I always enjoy chatting about history. <laughs> that was author and historian Alexander Canducci. You can, of course, find his book, History's Greatest Lies, on Amazon.com. You have been listening to Bookmark on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.